Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Baasha. According to the word of the Lord, which he had noticed, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha by Yehu the prophet, for all the sins of Baasha, because remember, Baasha did the same thing, right, to Nadab, and now um, this king is doing the same thing to Baasha's family, the exact same thing. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with senior pastor and teacher Rob Kellogg. This was a common practice in the ancient world and was exactly what Baasha did to the house of Jeroboam. David's treatment of the house of Saul was a glorious exception to this common practice. This massacre was an exact fulfillment of the word of the Lord through the prophet Yehu, the son of Hanani. In less than 50 years, the first two dynasties of Israel's kings had come to an end and every member of their families were exterminated. God meant to make their doom an example to those who should thereafter live ungodly. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he continues our study in chapter 16 in the book of 1 Kings. King may, his reign may have lasted 20 years, and in that 20 years there may have been a couple kings in, in, in one of the other uh, tribes, or in, you know, north or south. And so the Bible gives us, in context uh, of that king, you know, these other kings, but then it, then it also makes sure that it gives the account of that king in, a, in the next chapter. So it seems like you're kind of going forward and then rewinding and going back and looking. But just understand that that's really what the, the Word of God is trying to accomplish there. So now uh, the servant, the servant of, of Elah, the son of Baasha, Zimri, commander, notice, of half of his chariots, he conspired against him as he was in Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of the house in Tirzah. So we're going to see two men. We're going to see this man named Zimri, and later on we're going to see Omri battling for the throne. And Zimri was commander over the half of Elah's chariots, but Omri, we're going to find out later, as we've already read, he was the commander of the entire army. So he's the, he's the commander of the army, and so this uh, Zimri was really a subordinate, um, we believe, to Omri. And yet it was Omri, or I'm sorry, yet it was uh, uh, Zimri, excuse me, these names sound so familiar, you get them... If you're dyslexic, you can have a problem. I don't really think I'm dyslexic, but uh, so there's going to be some issues. But notice in verse nine, so his servant um, conspired. He was he was in Tirza, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza. And I was thinking about this today: how power and alcohol they never mix well, do they? 
They never mix well. And we'll see the same thing over and over and over again. And we see it even today. And in Proverbs, it tells us in chapter 20, verse 1, that wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And here's a man who's got a lot of power, and he's drinking. And he only had a two-year reign because of his foolishness. And, and later on in history, we're going to see this. Um, from this point in 1 Kings, we're going to see uh, later on in history, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Remember Belshazzar, who was in the, in the hall there um, after Nebuchadnezzar had died and after his son was on the throne? Finally, Belshazzar is the king in, in Babylon, and he's having a drunken orgy with all of his cabinet, and they bring out from the temple that, that had been raided in Jerusalem, they bring out all the articles, and they're drinking and, and, and having a great old time, and then a hand without an arm attached to it starts to write on the wall. And it says, Many, many tackle you farsen. And the interpretation is God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. You have been wanted, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting, and your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night, Belshazzar in his drunkenness was killed by the Medes and the Persians. And Babylon was overtaken in 539 BC by the Medes and the Persians. And yet we are to be in Christ's likeness. There's so much prohibition of, of, of things, of alcohol in the Bible. It's worth us as Christians taking a hard look at it. Because what does the Bible tell us? It says, do not be drunk with wine, wherein is excess. Meaning, don't drink to get drunk and to have the buzz and to go forward and, and do a little bit more. If, you're a, you, know, if you drink a, a glass of wine and you don't get drunk, that's between you and the Lord. But uh, some people can't do that. They, they want to get the buzz happening, or they might go a little bit further, but you are on shaky, you're, very, you're in a bad place. Do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Notice, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks, I love that, thanksgiving for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And that's a really great recipe for the church of God. I would encourage you that if you're a social drinker, even as a Christian, would you pray about just stopping, not out of legalism, just out of Staying away from the goal, or stay away, staying away from that line. Just stay away from the line. Don't flirt with the line. You know, when we were kids, we always did that. Your mother says, don't you cross that line. You, you don't cross that line. And what do we do as little kids? We look right at her and we go... <laughs> put a little toe over there. And we do it. We push the envelope all the time. Don't push the envelope ever. If you continue doing it, you're going to get busted. It's just not worth it. So Zimri, notice, goes into um, the king now. He goes in and he kills him. 
struck him and killed him in the 20th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And then it came to pass, when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on his throne, that he killed all the household of Baasha. And he did not leave him one male, neither of his relatives nor of his friends. So he really went after everything and everyone, and he made sure there was going to be no reprisals after this happened. It's sort of like an Italian family, and I can say this because I, I have some really great Italian friends. You hurt a member of the family, you're going to have issues. One day. He kills them all. Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Baasha. According to the word of the Lord, which he had... Notice, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha by Yehu the prophet, for all the sins of Baasha, because remember, Baasha did the same thing, right, to Nadab, and now um, this king is doing the same thing to Baasha's family, the exact same thing. Killing everybody, killing the king, and then going after his family, wiping out all the males. It happens in succession. Do you see this? For all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah, his son, by which he had sinned and by which they had made Israel to sin, and provoking the Lord God to anger with their idols. And I want to show you a very interesting thing here in uh, chapters 14 through 16 thus far. Because in 1 Kings 14, verses 10 and 11, God prophesied against King Jeroboam that his son and every male of his house would be destroyed and that God would remove the remnant of the house of Israel. And this would be accomplished, we just read it, when Jeroboam's son, Nadab, was killed by Baasha, the son of Ahijah. Baasha then killed all of the house of Jeroboam according to the word of the Lord which was spoken by Ahijah the prophet. Yes, according to the Lord. God was going to use one evil man to bring judgment upon another evil man he was going to do it and then God pronounces judgment against Baasha in 1 Kings chapter 16 that we just read the first four verses that he would do the same thing to his house that Baasha did to the house of Jeroboam again according to the word by Yehu and now in verse 10 through 12 here in chapter 16 Zimri does the same thing to Baasha that Baasha did to Jeroboam. And again, according to the word of the Lord spoken by Yehu the prophet. So this seems strange, doesn't it? That God would use Baasha and Zimri to accomplish what God had prophesied and then punish them for it. Does that seem fair to you? No. No. You're thinking rightly if you say no, because it's not fair. Were they culpable, these men who had killed these families, and these, all these men, were they culpable? culpable? Now, whether they understood the prophecy or not, God didn't say to Baasha, I want you to kill all of Nadab's family, and I want you to do it now, and you have no choice in the matter. It wasn't like that at all. Who knows whether they really heard this prophecy or whether they knew it was, but they followed through on their own evil heart, and there's the thing. They were culpable. God did not force. He didn't encourage them to kill entire families in each of these two men's lives. Um, but God, of course, had the foreknowledge knowledge that they would do this and thus they were culpable and they acted on their own evil desires 
That's the unfair advantage that God has. He's, omni, he's omniscient. He knows all things. He can say something very general, and years and years can go by, and then out of the attitude of a man's heart, he goes through out of his own passion and lust and ignorance and arrogance, and he steps out and he does that thing, and it fulfills the very prophecy that God had spoken to earlier, sometimes hundreds of years earlier. The Bible's filled with this stuff. And God holds them culpable, just as he held Judas culpable. It had been prophesied in the Psalms that Judas would betray the Son of God. And do you think for a minute that Judas was thinking, I think I'm going to fulfill prophecy so I, can get, so I can be famous, so that I can get 30 pieces of silver. He wasn't thinking that at all. I don't think he was thinking about the scriptures at all. He was thinking about one thing himself. He had nobody else in mind. He was only thinking of himself. I love what it says in James chapter 1 verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God because that's what it sounds like. God made a proclamation that this is he's going to pronounce judgment on uh, on a man because of what he did and then he's going to use another ungodly man to fulfill that and then he's going to punish the man for doing it. It almost seems wrong, but God Those men were culpable because it tells us that no one can say that I'm tempted and and, and that I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone to sin. God does not do that. The devil does that. God may try you, he may test you, but he doesn't tempt you to sin. There's a big difference. One's to get you to fall off. And, and to fall into the ditch, and the other one is instruction to make you stronger. Two different things to think about. One is to tempt you to sin, and that's what he, when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the, in, the, in the desert for those 40 days, that's exactly what Satan was trying to do. But when God tempts you and I, it's, when, when he tests us, it's, it's to show the... the, 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 the the assurity, the the quality of where we're at. See, God already knows this, but I don't know that. I don't know what I'm going to do in a situation until I'm tested. But when I'm tested, all of a sudden I realize I'm really not all I think I was. I thought that I would do this. I boasted a lot about if I was in that position, I would have done this. If, I, if that ever happened to me, man, I would have, you know, and we get all these other things happening like that. And God's saying, do you really know your heart, Mr. Kellogg? And the answer is, no, sir, I don't. I don't know my own heart. But God does not tempt. Satan tempts. Has God done this sort of thing before? Yes, he has. God's used his own people. When they came out of Egypt, he used his own people to judge those seven nations of the Canaanites. Remember? He wouldn't lead them in there because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. But when the iniquity of the Amorites was full, what did God do? He used his own people, brought them out of Israel, stirred them up in the desert for 40 years, brought them into the promised land, and told them to go in and wipe out all of these evildoers. And we know that they didn't do the job completely. 
But God would use his own rebellious people to bring judgment upon other people. And later God would judge his own people for their idolatry by ungodly nations like Assyria and Babylon specifically. And God would then judge Assyria and Babylon for what they did to Israel. Does it sound familiar to what we're seeing tonight? It's like the hammer coming down on the hammer and then bringing judgment upon the hammer. That's exactly what it is. God even called Nebuchadnezzar his servant. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 9, it says, Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord. This is a prophecy of Jeremiah, uh, of when Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, God says, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against all these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them, and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolations. Yes, this idolatrous, evil man, Nebuchadnezzar, who I believe is in heaven, by the way. You can read Daniel 4 and figure that out for yourself. But he used this man as a hammer against his own people. And then God judged Nebuchadnezzar and his, and his kingdom. He did the same thing with, well, well similar idea with, with Cyrus. God called this pagan Gentile king Cyrus his shepherd. Isaiah 44, verse 28 who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation be laid. The bottom line here is that God is not partial to anyone or anything. He's going to use something to judge something else, and then he's going to hold that thing accountable for its treachery in doing it, because they did it of their own volition, of their own evil heart. Because God does not tempt any man. Does that make sense? We, we know that to be true all over the Bible. And I just gave you some really great examples. God can and does use ungodly people or nations to judge other people or nations and then holds them accountable for that sin. It's an amazing mystery to me. But back in verse 14 now, it says, Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Is that, are those books available to us today? They're not. Whenever you see the books of the Chronicles of the King of Judah, are they available to us? Yes, they are. First and Second Chronicles are the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. But the Kings of Israel? No, we don't have them. So look in verse 15 now. It says, Now in the 27th year of King Asa, king of Judah, Zimri had uh, reigned in Tirzah, notice, seven days. He had one great week. And the people were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. Now Zimri reigned uh, seven days, which is the shortest time of any king in Israel. And this place of Gibbethon is, is near the shore of the Mediterranean, uh, just north a little bit of, of Ekron, one of the five capital cities of the Philistines. And this is the second time it's mentioned that, they, that the, the children of Israel in the north, they went against them. We saw it in 1 Kings 15, verse 27. They, they Under um, the reign of Nadab, Jeroboam's son, who reigned for only two years, they went against Gibbethon, uh, against the Philistines at this specific location. And now they're back at it again. But now the people who were encamped, verse 16, heard it, saying, Zimri has conspired also and has killed the king. So now 
they come to find out that Zimri has killed the king. And it's also, um, and so all Israel then, at that time, they made Omri, who was the commander of the army, a very a natural fit, I guess. He was the commander of the army. The president has been shot. So now they're going to make the, uh, you know, the commander of the army uh, king over Israel. And so they did that. They made him king. And, um, and then Omri, verse 17, and all Israel went with him now. Notice they leave Gibbethon, where they were fighting the, the Philistines, and now they besiege Tirzah, which is the hometown of Jeroboam, and it's also the capital, if you will, at this time. And, and now they're going there to kill the king. So they're leaving the real enemies of God now to go and fight an enemy within. And what a sad thing that is when we lose track of, we, we got enemies within and without. And, and, and we see the northern kingdom, do you see it just falling apart? You know, at first it split, and now the ten tribes are up there, and they're just, they're just a mess. They're just a mess. And it happened, verse 18, when Zimri saw that the king, that the city was taken, that he went into the citadel, or the highest part of the king's palace, and he burned the king's house down upon himself with fire, and he died. And notice what the scripture says. Because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord, in walking in the way of Jeroboam. Notice again the comparison to Jeroboam. Everyone's going to compare to Jeroboam now. Just like the southern two tribes are going to be compared to who? David, yeah. So Zimri committed suicide and his death was justice for the evil which he had done. Verse 20, now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the treason, notice that he committed. He killed the king while he was drunk. Are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Is that book available to us? It's not. So verse 21, then the people of Israel were divided now. So now a divided kingdom, now the, the, the northern ten tribes are going to be divided again. It, it almost like it's falling, it's like falling apart. It's, so the rest of, uh, excuse me, verse 21. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginath, to make him king. And the other followed Omri. And Tibni reigned for about five, uh, roughly five years until Omri and his people prevailed against him, assumingly killing him and his followers and taking control. Omri was a, a, uh, he was a very able leader. He wasn't a godly man by any means, but he was probably the strongest leader up to that point in the, in the, in the northern t- ten tribes. In fact, it's, it's, it's been found on a number of archaeological fragments and things of that nature. They, they, at, at this time, they called Israel the land of Omri. That, that's how important this guy was, because he was a, a strong man. He, he had a, a good mind mentally. Um, he wasn't a godly man by any means. But in the 30... Uh, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel, and he reigned 12 years. In six years, he reigned in Tirzah, and he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and then he built on the hill, called the name of the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, owner of the hill. 
So half of his reign, he reigned from Tirzah, the, the capital and hometown of Jeroboam, and the other half of his reign, he reigned from this new capital now that Omri is going to establish called Samaria. And Samaria literally means a watchtower. And the reason they call it a watchtower is because it was 300 feet high, and all around it you had to go up to it. So it reminds you a lot of Jerusalem, of the city of David, Zion. It was a very similar kind of thing. Because Jerusalem, wherever you go, you're going up. And so to attack Jerusalem, you've got to come up on all, this, all the different sides. And so the northern ten tribes say, you know what, we need a place like that too, that's just as impregnable as Jerusalem. We need a, a strategic location, and what better place than 300 feet on a hill where you can see your enemy come up and just throw rocks at him and, until he's tired, and then he goes away. I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today, but please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of 1 Kings. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office. You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things such as information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, our location, service times, and much more. You can also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester's sanctuary messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Podcast or Apple Podcast. You're also invited to join us on Sunday and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link on the website. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way that we can bless you with your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.